Good morning, church. Good to see you. Go ahead and stand up. I'm Steve. I'm glad that you've chosen to be in this place. We want to worship God. The testimony that we have be a light to the world. Let's try this again. God, I'm sorry. We're on a really weird spot. We're not actually. Let's try it right here instead. This is actual words there. We're gonna do this one, one, one more time. I don't know what's happening up there. So uh, let's go to the first song. <laughs> hey, that's closer. We're gonna get it. Go. These are the words. Here we go. I saw Satan fall like light. Some darkness from for cover
whether you're in person or online. Uh, today is Baby Dedication Day. But before we get to that, we're going to have a few announcements. My name's Lisa Maddox, by the way. I don't know if I said that. I kind of forget things. Anyway, this coming Friday, we have our, our family block party. That's August the 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. And it takes place out behind the building in our new pavilion slash party shed, depending on which word you like to use for that. We will supply food. There will be some games like uh, volleyball and maybe some cornhole and maybe even a few card games for people who don't want to get up and jump around like that. The big thing with the block party, it is a great time for you to bring family and friends who may not have an affiliation with our church. So invite some folks and come on out on Friday from 6 to 8. Next announcement. Next Sunday, the 14th, is our last Staycation Sunday. Oh, that makes us sad. But it's a back-to-school Sunday. So we're asking you, yeah, I know, I heard the teachers out here saying, aww. <laughs> we're asking you to bring supplies, school supplies, paper, good pencils, not the cruddy pencils, because the teachers will tell you, don't bring the cruddy pencils. They're gone in a day. Uh, any kind of supplies, and we'll have some tubs out by the connections room that you can put that stuff in. And then we will distribute those items to the Franklin County Schools and Frankfurt Independent Schools so the kids have good school supplies, okay? Also, next Sunday in the evening, our students, 6th through 12th graders, have their back-to-school bash. So if you have a 6th through 12th grade student, here's one thing you need to do. Pull out your phone, get on the Church Center app, look at the sign-ups page, and sign your 6th through 12th grader up to come to the back to school bash next Sunday. Anybody who is registered on that page will have their name put in the pot to get an Amazon gift card. I'd kind of like that, but I don't have a sixth through 12th grader anymore. Uh, there will also be food there, free food for the kids and games with water. So be prepared for that. And an inflatable with foosball. That's kind of fun because we do that at church camp. All right. Our last announcement this morning has to do with Jesus Prom. Jesus Prom is an activity that we have done over the years for our community of intellectual and developmentally disabled folks. It is a wonderful evening, and it takes place this year on August the 19th from 7 to 8.30. Now, here's the deal. We call this an all-hands-on-deck activity. That means... You guys are all the hands, and we need you on deck. So here's what you guys can do to help us make Jesus Promenade a success. We are in great need of escorts. Those are folks who walk around with our guests, take them to the game room, let them play games, bring them in here to dance, all those kinds of things. It's really fun. It's really rewarding. You have a card on your chair when you came in. It has a place for you to fill out, and you can become an escort, okay? So go ahead, grab that pencil in the chair in front of you, and fill that card out, and then turn it in, in the off when you go back to do offering and communion later on, okay? That's the teacher in me coming out. Fill that paper out. Do it now. And put your name on it, first and last name. All right, now that our announcements are over, it's time for us to move on to our baby dedication ceremony. Now, if you, 
as you came in, I'm sure you noticed we have prints of each child who is being dedicated today. And if you're a family in the audience, you didn't sign up to do baby dedication, but you want to bring your child forward, come on up. This is the time, okay? So these are families who have added a child in the last year or so, and they want to dedicate their child to Christ. Now, we want you to go out after the service and just look at those pictures of all these kids. Take a moment to pray for each family individually. This year, we've also added a luncheon for our Baby Dedication Sunday, and it'll take place after our 11 o'clock service for all of our baby families to attend. We hope today's event will be one where these families feel the affirmation of our church and know that Capital City is standing with them as they raise their children to love Jesus. Research experts and statistics tell us that kids with meaningful relationships with other adults, like adults within this church, have a better chance of becoming who God wants them to be. Our church family has a responsibility to these children, to these families, to come alongside and aid in nurturing these precious lives. So now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a responsive reading with our families, and they will answer, and then at the end, I'm going to do one with you as a church family, affirming your support of these families, and you will answer we do. Okay? Everybody got it? Do you receive this child with gratitude as God's gift to you and your family? Answer, we do. <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> do you commit to each other as parents to creating a stable environment in which your child can mature? Do you commit to be parents of personal faith, recognizing your children are more likely to follow God's path by the model they first observe in you? Do you commit to lead a faith-filled home that honors God in all your relationships and in the choices you make in spiritually growing your family? Do you commit to be parents with patience, recognizing that with your inherent strengths and weaknesses, your desire to shape your child is a loving act that will require time, prayer, and God in order to produce in your children what he and you wish for. Church family, will you please stand? Will you, members of this church family, be faithful to your calling as members of the body of Christ so that these children and all other children in your midst may grow up in the knowledge and love of him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these young lives and these families that they represent. God, we pray for your blessings on each child here today. We pray that these for these parents that they will gain guidance and wisdom from you in raising these children. And God, we pray for your church that we will take our responsibility to encourage and assist these families seriously. We praise you for who you are, God, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Okay, we are about to start our worship program up again. So if you all want to stay standing, that's fine. If you want to have a seat, go ahead.
Father in heaven, we are here today because of our love for you, what you have done within each of us. Father, so many times we get into situations where we want to act for you. We want to speak for you. We want to live for you. And our fear holds us back. God, I ask that you will change that right now. And because of our love for you, Father, that you change us from the inside out. I thank you so much for loving us. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat for a few moments? We're going to come into a time where we will be able to think about Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And when we do that, we're a chance for us to remember what it was when Jesus was on this earth and he instituted this thing that we call communion. And in this communion service, we are given a, a way for us to always come together in a family meal to remember that his body and blood were sacrificed for each of us. And so over these next few moments, we're going to give a, uh, a chance to go to these tables that are around this room. And at the tables, you'll, you'll see a variety of things. You'll see some bread and some juice. These are the emblems, the representations of Jesus Christ and his body and his blood. There's a way for us to remember. This is always a memorial service when we come together. And if you have more questions about that, you want to know why we do this, this is a way for us to remember what he has done so that we can learn how to be that sacrificial and loving in this world. When we just sing about these things, we do these things, we're, we're talking about a, a different lifestyle from the rest of this world. We're going to look different. We're going to sound different. You know, when we sing about having the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, that means we're going we're gonna to look like Jesus Christ. We're going to act like Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, and speaking from my own personal experience, I get in situations sometimes where I fail. And this is a way for us to be reset and say, God, make that happen within me. Let your spirit reign supreme within me so that when I get out into this world, I can act like Jesus would have me act. I want that to be on our hearts as we go to the table in a few moments. This is a, a time for you to be able to give an offering. We have these black, buck, uh, black boxes at each of the stations, and we also have something called the generous bucket. This is a little different from a lot of places that you'll see. If you have an extra dollar beyond your offering, a couple dollars that you want to put into that, we're going to be able to give it to people in need in this community, throughout Kentucky, if we go into uh, some of those other situations that are out there. So if you go ahead and stand again, we're going to go to the tables and remember what Jesus Christ has done for each of us and try to act just like him.
Good morning. Welcome to Capital City. If you're joining us online, we're really glad you're joining us. We've been going about the last two months or so on this little series, Bloodstained Pews. Good series about making a church that's going to be welcoming to those who are hurting. And this may be the most important sermon in this whole series. This one has to be done right. I think I've got it from here. He put me up to that, I promise. <laughs> My name is Ben Webb, and I am new to this place. Uh, years ago, I had an elder who talked to me about uh, the Lord's table, and he compared it to his mother's table at Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? How no matter how many people got married, how many kids they had, how many friends they invited, there seemed like there was always room at that table. And it seemed like there was always enough food, that it was always took care of itself, it always showed up. And I've been blown away ever since I heard that illustration about the power, the unifying power of the Lord's table. That it brings us together from all different places, all different backgrounds, all different situations, the diversity of the church, and how yet when we come to the Lord's table, we do it together. All the reasons that we don't have in common for us to be together, and yet the Lord's table pulls us together. And that something miraculous happens every single week. It's every single Sunday around the world. It's happening. It's been happening for centuries. It's been happening for millennia where gatherers, where followers of Christ come together and they sit around a common table and they celebrate the work of Jesus Christ in their lives and they celebrate what it is that he's done for them and it brings them and unifies them together. And I love that image because whether you know it or not, we've been at this table together for a long time. This is my... <laughs> This is my fifth time in this room. It's the fifth time that I've sat at this table with you specifically in this place, but I have been here for a long, long time. We have gathered together. We've worshiped together the same Lord and Jesus, and this is new for us right now, but we have been family for a long time, and I find that very powerful. I'm grateful to be in Frankfurt. You guys have loved us so very well. Uh, the way in which you have welcomed me and my family, I can't say thank you enough uh, to, to what you've done for us as we've come into this community, and, and even especially Doc, what he's poured into to me and, and to my family, it really means a lot, and I'm very grateful for our time here. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be in this place, and I'm looking forward to what the future holds. Now, with that said, we've been talking about bloodstained pews for a while. Uh, for 10 weeks, we've been looking at this, and it started with this illustration. It started with an image of these two young men who are dropped behind enemy lines, and their job is to set up a place of, of medic, a, a place of hospital, a place of care for the wounded, to be able to meet their needs. And so that's, that's what they do, and, and they go and they find a little church in the middle of the night in this little French town, and they set up a medical facility, and one of them gets in position, and then the other one goes out and begins looking for the wounded. It wasn't too long after that, uh, January of 1945, the Germans are now being pushed back. The Nazis are being pushed back. They're retreating. And when they do, they leave things behind, like the picture that you're seeing right now. That's Auschwitz, a famous concentration camp, infamous famous concentration camp that you've probably heard of, where they kept thousands and thousands of prisoners, where many 
captives where many prisoners lost their lives. And as they retreated, they would leave places like this behind. In January of 1945, uh, the SS officers took about 56,000 prisoners out of this location and made them march into the winter back towards Germany and retreat. They had this idea that somehow they were going to become forced labor. The 56,000 prisoners that they take, they deemed strong enough to actually make the journey. Many of them didn't. But they left 9,000 behind. They left 9,000 prisoners in this camp with just a small group of SS officers to oversee what was taking place there. And really, they weren't there for the sake of the prisoners. They were there to clean up and to hide the atrocities of what had taken place in that location. The prisoners left behind were deemed too close to death. They had no food. They had no water. They had no resources, any sort of medical care. Even the SS officers paid no attention to them, didn't address them. They sat most of them too weak to move for days and days until late in that month a random soviet scout happens to come across this camp and he's stunned what he sees doesn't comprehend in his mind he can't even make it begin to make sense and what he sees is kind of strange and and he has some weird interactions with the prisoners who are there and they're thrilled to see him but he can't even understand why they're there and what's going on Eventually, the rest of the Soviet army arrives. Eventually, the Red Cross comes into this place, and they begin caring for these survivors. They begin feeding them, which for some of them actually caused them to lose their lives. They were so, so malnourished. They were so starving that the introduction of food, their bodies weren't capable of handling it and digesting it. And they began bringing care to these people and bringing them back to life. One of the most haunting things that I came across as I read through all of this. It was a quote from an orderly from the Red Cross. His name is Tadeusz Kuczynski. And he had this to say. He said, some of the sick did not realize that they were now free people. Some of the sick did not realize that they were now freed people. You see, history is filled with freed people who were unaware of their freedom. And it's not just World War II. It's not just this moment. History is filled with it. In fact, you can look into our own nation's history. If you look into the the, the time period in our nation of the Civil War and the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation that came out in 1861, freed slaves, and yet for many years, many of them had no knowledge of their freedom. There's a new national holiday uh, called Juneteenth, which is a celebration of the day that word of freedom reached Texas in 1865. For four years, people had been freed, but lived as slaves, unaware of their freedom. Uh, More research will show that that took place all the way into 1866 in different places within the United States. See, history is filled with people who are free, but they're unaware of their freedom. And it's bigger than that. It's in this room right now. That there's this reality that there are people who have been freed by the work of Jesus Christ, and yet they're unaware of it. Walking around as captive, unaware of their freedom. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has this really interesting interaction. He has been surrounded by these groups. It's just chaotic, and they come in around him, and they're constantly just all around him, and and just people all day, every day, and he's worn out, and there's this brief moment in Matthew 16 where he gets away from it all. 
and it's just him and his disciples, and it's an opportunity for them to kind of just retreat and catch their breath, and they're having an interesting conversation. As they're hanging out, Jesus looks to his disciples, and he asks them a very simple question. He says, who are people saying that I am? Who do people say that I am? It's an interesting question, because as Jesus is going around, and he's interacting with all these people, there's lots of people who don't understand who Jesus is, and it's confusing to them, and they struggle with it, and they don't really comprehend what they should be doing with this guy named Jesus. It's beyond them. And so they would go and talk to the disciples, and they'd ask questions, and they'd come up with their best guesses. And one of them was this guy, Elijah. They thought maybe Jesus is Elijah. Elijah was this prophet in the Old Testament. He lived 850 years before this moment. The events of his uh, death, maybe end of life, are kind of strange. And so people are reasoning in their mind, maybe this is Elijah. He's come back. There's others who think, well, maybe he's not Elijah, but if Elijah could come back, maybe it's a different prophet. They could come back too. And so people are just trying to understand and figure out exactly how they can look at this man, Jesus, and understand who he is. Jesus stops their conversation with him, and he twists it just a little bit. And he looks back at the disciples and he says, I want to know who you say that I am. I don't want to just know about who they think I am. Who do you think I am? And this guy named Simon speaks up real quick. Now, we know him better as Peter. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard the name Peter better than you have Simon. This is the story. This is the moment when his life changes very literally, okay? And his name even gets changed from Simon to Peter. Peter is this kind of obnoxious guy. He's loud. He has leadership qualities. He doesn't have leadership training, all right? And so he's just kind of this bull in a china shop and he's all over the place and he's difficult sometimes and sometimes he gets in trouble because his mouth speaks before his head thinks all right this is just kind of who he is but this moment he blurts something out and it's beautiful he actually gets it right he he just blurts out jesus says who do you say that i am and he just says it very quickly he says i believe you're the messiah i think you're the son of god and what I think is really cool is that no one else really even speaks in this moment. None of the other disciples offer other answers. There's no debate about the take because I think that the rest of the disciples in the room would have agreed. They would have heard this and they would have thought, yeah, that, that's the decision. That's what we've all come to. They're probably a little upset because they didn't say it first, all right? But, but they would have all agreed. There's no, this isn't a hot take. There's no conflict in this. Everybody would have pretty much so agreed in this moment that this is exactly who Jesus is. And Jesus smiles. And he looks to Peter and he says this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Okay, now I want you to hang on to this. The statement that Simon makes is so significant that this is now a point in his life. He is no longer the same person he was before saying it, and he will no longer be the same person after he says it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's why when we have people walk down into the water, they say the same thing. It changes your life to pronounce that he is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. It's life-changing. And Jesus says it's so life-changing, I'm going to change your name. Your name is now Peter. And then he says, and on this rock. Now that's kind of weird. I'm highlighting it for you because Peter just means rock, all right? And so Jesus is doing some wordplay here. So he says, I'm telling you that your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now some people hear this, 
And they believe that this is Jesus making kind of like a prophecy or this declaration that he was going to build the church on Peter, that Peter was going to be this foundational piece. I don't buy that. I don't believe that. This is where Jesus is saying that the church is built on this truth that he has proclaimed, the truth that he is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. And on this, this is the rock that Jesus is building his church. And then he says this, and this is where we want to spend a lot of time today. He says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is interesting. Jesus asks a question, who do you say I am? Peter gives an answer. Jesus takes it and turns it into the church and talks about mission. It's really interesting. He twists it up. And I want you to pause for a moment. I want you to think about how you've heard this verse before. If you've been worshiping with me at this Lord's table for years and years and years, then you've heard this passage before, you're going to be familiar with it, and you're going to have a mental image of what you anticipate or what you think Jesus is saying here. And for many years, this is my mental image. It's the, Lord's, or the, the, the Lord of the Rings scene, and there's this incredible, uh, well, it's not a church, but we're going to call it a church. It's this it's this palace that's set up, and it's got strong walls and strong gates. It's, it's well-fortressed in. And what I've heard when I've, when I've heard this verse is I've heard something like this. In my mind, the church is safe and secure, and there's Satan's forces, and they're seeking to press in and break down those walls, but we're good. The gates of hell won't prevail. Yeah, it's beautiful, and it's true. It's true. You can look through history. And you can see that there's been time and time again when the church has screwed it up. You can drive through Frankfort, Kentucky and see all the different churches and every single one of them represents a division of how we mess it up and how we split and how we came apart. And all throughout history, you can see how this is messed up and how we get it wrong. And yet, here we are. Us meeting in this room right now is evidence of this. It's proof of it. In fact, if you look globally right now, the word of God continues to grow. The, the, the church continues to, to move forward and expand. And in fact, it's, it's booming. Like it, it's growing exponentially right now, specifically South America and Africa. There's just incredible work that the gospel is doing worldwide right now. And it's beautiful. And sometimes it may not feel that way here. Maybe we struggle a little bit with what that looks like here in America. But here's the truth. The church continues to grow no matter what Satan does. And I've always seen this verse as evidence that the church cannot be beaten. And it's true. But it's bigger than that. It's more than that. You see, we're called to go on the offense. The church presses forward. And we've had this picture in our head backwards for way too long. It doesn't look like before. It looks like this. This is what Jesus says. He says that the gates of hell won't prevail. It's not attacking us. We're on the attack. Do you see the difference? That we're the ones who are pressing forward. That we're the ones who are seeking to save. That we're pushing through, looking for those who may be captive. That whatever strongholds we believe exist in this world, where hell may have itself firmly planted and rooted in deep, that the church can overcome it. That the church has the ability to press through anything that would hold us back. And that changes our perspective a little bit. The church exists for the purpose of knocking down gates and finding those who are lost and finding people who don't even know that they're lost. People who are free, but they don't know that they have access to freedom. 
We can't be beat. And we can't be stopped. And there are those who won't agree and there are those who won't join. And there's certainly those who would love to fight back. Satan himself would love nothing more than to cause this church to, to fall and to stumble, to rip it apart. And yet Christ's church, this universal church, the one that's still existing worldwide, it will not be conquered. And we've been called to break down walls and break down barriers and reach into where people are lost. Now, this is dangerous, okay? Because too often churches will speak with this kind of language, and then the church gets it wrong, and we do damage. It's really dangerous to stand up here and talk about how the church has to be on attack and how we have to be the ones who press forward. It's really dangerous because if we do it wrong, we cause more damage than what we should be doing. We're here to heal, not cause damage, and we get this wrong. And it starts with a little song that you sang when you were four. Do you remember? I'm going I'm to start it, and you're going to hear it, and you're going you're gonna to sing it along, all right? I'm not going to sing it, but you're going to, and it's going to be there the rest of the day, all right? And it's going to cause you to remember the little gray-haired lady who taught you the song. And then, and then you're going to get nostalgic, and you're going to feel good, and it's going to make you smile, and I'm going to totally ruin it for you, all right? You remember... I may never march in the infantry, infantry ride in the cavalry. cavalry, shoot the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army. You remember that? Man, look at this. We're laughing. We're smiling. It's a good song. Man, we screw it up. We mess it up. Because you know what happens? We sing, I may never, but then what happens is Christians decide, I'll just go ahead and enlist anyways. And the church decides, I'm going to be in the infantry. I'm going to go be the front lines. Christians decide, I'm going to go press. I'm going to be the front lines, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help push and decide where law goes and where politics go and where culture goes, that somehow the church is going to save the world by being the front lines fighting those battles. We don't win, we just wound. And we take on this idea that if we become the cavalry, that we can ride around on our high horse and we draw a sword and we cut down anybody who's beneath us who doesn't live to our standards. And that doesn't win people to Christ. That just wounds. We decide that we want to lob missiles and bombs and we want to fire bullets at people and we call them truth. Doc talked about this last week that we fire and do everything we can and we, and we hide behind this idea that, well, if it's the truth, it's the truth, it doesn't matter and it's not full of grace. Doc called you jerks. I tend to agree. <laughs> we sit behind these keyboards and we say things on a screen and we say it's the truth so it's right, but we don't even care that it's just hurting and wounding people. Do you hear what I'm saying? The church gets in this idea that we're the infantry or we're the cavalry or we're, the, we're shooting the artillery and all we're doing is wounding the people that Christ has actually called us to come and save. You know what we are? We're in the Lord's army. We're in the search and rescue division. Amen. That's it. That's it. It's search and rescue. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. It's where the imagery of this sermon series started. With these two men drop behind enemy lines, they find a church, they set up a medical facility, and then they go out and find the wounded. One of them goes out and finds the wounded. You notice that they both didn't just sit in there with cups of coffee wondering when someone might wander in? 
It's search and rescue, which means that search and rescue for us, it means that we move strategically behind enemy lines. That the gates of hell have not prevailed. They've been broke down. Search and rescue means that as a Christian, you are an alien in this world. That from the moment you pledged allegiance to Jesus, you said this isn't your home anymore. And that you agreed that you now live in a foreign place. And you work as an agent behind enemy lines, working to seek and to save those who are lost. Search and rescue means that we ought to live in such a way that we see people as those who need to be freed. As those who need to be loved as those who need to be captured, not as our enemies. Sometimes we struggle with that. We see people live certain ways, we hear people say certain things, and we think that they're the enemy. They're not. They're captives. And they need to be freed. You see, we don't wait for captives to randomly wander into our camp. As a church, we don't just sit back and wait for random lost people to happen to trip into our building. I know too many churches who function like that and too many of them are dying because that's not what we're called to. We're called to search and rescue. We leave the church. We find a cart. We bring them in however they may be bleeding or whatever wounds they may carry, whatever pain they may bring or whatever thoughts they may believe. We leave the church. We find a cart. We pile them on and we bring them in. That's our job. Search and rescue is subversive behavior. And I believe that if you do this well, you'll find that it's incredibly fun. This is enjoyable. This is life-giving, fun behavior. And it looks like all sorts of different things. You will only be limited by your creativity, but I'll give you a few examples and I'll point you to some areas where you can find more. One of them is this, and this is one of my favorite things. I think you should adopt a restaurant. I think you should commit to eating there every single week at the same time and just keep doing it. And you'll walk in and they'll know your name. They'll have your table ready for you. And you'll know their names. And what you're doing is you're recognizing that that's a dark place and you're going to subversively just infiltrate. You're going to live behind enemy lines. Some of you have been doing this. I guarantee, I've, I'm new to this place, I guarantee you there's a group of men in this room right now who meet at, at McDonald's every Thursday morning. <laughs> Guaranteed. Right? Some of you already do this. The problem is you just haven't been doing it for Jesus. See your role, see your opportunity, live in such a way that you build those relationships and all you're doing is you're inching people closer to a place where they can be healed. That's it. You're living in that space looking to see who there needs to be rescued and who you can help serve and save. I've got a, a friend that I met last fall who has started a ministry, and I think this is just lots of fun. He started a ministry in Ohio that's called Brew Pastors. And he has this vision. He wants a pastor for every brewery across America. And he wants that pastor to just adopt that place, to just go be there. Be there enough that you get to know who the owner is and the employees are and figure out who the regulars are and live with them in such a manner that you become their pastor and you're gently leading them towards Christ. I think it's a beautiful image. And it's a beautiful calling. It's something that's worth pursuing. It's more than that. You could just simply start by knowing your neighbors there was a time in history when you knew your neighbors and you knew the names of their kids and you had the opportunity to discipline their kids if you needed to, right? 
You knew where they went to school. You knew, you knew how much money was in their retirement, all right? Like you knew them too well, okay? There was this time, and it's not that way anymore, and I hear people lament about that. I think that's an opportunity for the church. What if you actually just knew your neighbor's names, and you invested in a relationship with them, and you cared for them enough that you were gently just leading them towards Jesus? What if you built a relationship with them that whenever they had something going on in their lives, they brought prayer to you? They knew that you were a person of, of God, and so they wanted to, to bring things to you, and you became their pastor. And then subversively in your neighborhood, you saved your neighbors. How cool would that be if you brought them into the water here? And then the two of you started figuring out who else you could reach in your neighborhood. How beautiful would that be? Subversive behavior turns really, really fun. There's one of my favorite books. is a book called Gorilla Lovers. It's written by a guy named Vince Antonucci. That word gorilla there, you'll notice, is spelled like the warfare style. And he has this beautiful idea that Christians should live in this sneaky love attack mode. That you just sneak up on people and you pound them with the love of Jesus, catch them off guard, and then you're gone before they even know what happened. And you just do this in such a way, in such a, such a manner, that it just draws people, it, it kind of enchants people with this idea of the goodness of who Jesus is. And it draws them in. There's another guy named Bob Goff. He's written a couple books that you may be familiar with. One of them is called Love Does. The other one is Everybody Always. These are basically journals where he just writes his stories. What Bob Goff does is he just takes Jesus with him wherever he goes. And then because of that, he has these incredible interactions with people. And he brings them just a little bit closer, each one of them. It's why this church has been pushing you to do 12,000 nudges, 1,000 each month. We've been encouraging you to think and figure out who you, could, who you could push, who you can nudge. We want you to live in such a way that as you walk through this community, every person you interact with, that when you walk away from them, they're an inch closer to Jesus than they were before. That you're living search and rescue mission. This month, we're trying to do back-to-school supplies so we can encourage, encourage our community. Search and rescue. Going where they're at. And living in such a way that we just draw them in, that they're closer to Jesus when they're done with us than they were before. Carl Kuhl, in his book, Bloodstained Pews, that we've been looking at, he finishes his book with this quote. He says, make no mistake, the church was never meant to be a club for the healthy or a gathering for the perfect. The church was never meant to be a show or a production it was never meant to be a carrier of tradition or a membership club. The church was not started to achieve political gain or business influence. What Kenneth Moore and Robert Wright saw on D-Day at a thousand-year-old church is what it was always intended to be. A place of bloodstained pews, a place for the broken and burdened, a place for all of us. And so we search and we rescue. And I was reading through, looking at the stories out of Auschwitz. The, the coolest thing I saw was this. After the Red Cross showed up and began offering help to the prisoners in Auschwitz, it was this very strange reality where the prisoners there weren't actually prisoners. They were freed people. And over time, the people began to realize it. And if they were healthy enough, they would leave. Sometimes they would leave on their own. Sometimes they would leave in, in small groups. But as people reached a point of health, they gained confidence and comfort with the idea that they could, that they could actually leave. But not everyone left. In fact, there was a group of about 90 former prisoners who chose to stay. They were healthy. They were aware. They were knowledgeable of their freedom, but they didn't walk away. Instead, they stayed. And they gave vital assistance to the Soviet and the Red Cross hospitals. 
You know why they did that? Because they knew the people who were there. They knew the prisoners, they knew the captives, and they'd lived with them in such a way that they weren't willing to walk away. Is that you? Do you see people who are far from Christ as being captives? What if it's your kid? What if it's your parents? What if it's your neighbor? Do you see them as someone who desperately needs to be brought to Christ? And are you willing to engage? Are you willing to work in subversive ways? Are you willing to go behind enemy lines and reach them? Maybe today is the day that you actually just need to choose freedom. You've been living as a captive, and today's your opportunity to recognize that freedom is here waiting for you. You just have to choose to walk out. We're going to sing a song of invitation. I'll be sitting on the front row. If you want to come up and have that conversation, we'd love to do that. The water's warm, and we can make it happen right now. Some of you maybe just need some prayer. We have a prayer room in the back corner over here. There's an elder in there who's praying for you right now. If you want to hear their prayer for you right now, go and sit with them. Go and pray with them. They would love to do that and encourage you. Maybe you feel convicted and you need to repent. That'd be great. Or maybe, maybe the idea of a church like this is something you want to be a part of. You want to be a part of a church that's on a mission and moving forward and fighting the gates of hell that we're looking to rescue anyone and everyone we can. And if you want to come up here and join this church and become a member, we'd love for you to do that right now. Whatever it is, however the Holy Spirit leads you, we stand right now and let's sing.
love that God has given each of us. We want to be his perfect example in this world. We do our best to live like him. This is the foundation that we live on. I will build my life on us. But we say together, I will build my life on the love of Jesus Christ. our foundation. We want this world to know that we are yours. We want your love to be what guides us in this world. We give you everything. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat? She has been creating her own sermons and baptizing herself in the bathtub. So needless to say, today is a long day coming for her. Kennedy, I pray that you continue to love God with all of your heart and that you never lose your desire to seek him and to tell others about him. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me the confession of faith. I believe, I believe that, Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of the living God and I accept him, I accept him as, my personal Lord as my personal Lord and Savior. And Savior. Kennedy, because of your confession of faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of God's Holy Spirit. That's cool, isn't it? That's what it's about. That is so neat. Absolutely. 
Okay, guys, every great story has a villain, right? All of them. If you watch a lot of movies, TV, you can see great villains. Mr. Smith from Matrix, you've got the Joker, you've got Kaiser Soze in one of the great movies, The Usual Suspects. You've got Hannibal Lecter, believe it or not, the little kid in the middle. If you're old, you might remember, he's probably the worst villain there. He's the Antichrist, right? Damien and the Omen, right? All of these stories. Yeah, and that doesn't mean much to me. I live in the world of sports. So when I think of villains, I think of some of these guys, and I've heard that some of them I'm not even allowed to say. So you have Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Depends on where you're at. I mean, some people make bad decisions, but they're, they're awful. And Bobby Knight, even in Indiana, we don't even say his name anymore. And then, uh, then I've been told not to say his name. All right, and then there's Mike Tyson. Is that, was that right? All right, there we go. There we go. They already love me. All right, so yeah. Mike Tyson, Tanya Harding. And depending on generation, LeBron James. I don't hate LeBron James, but I do. old people do. <laughs> even, even Disney films have their villains, right? Now, I got to tell you, I'm probably going to get the names wrong because I avoid every Disney film ever. You okay? look like a princess movie. But you've guy. got Cruella. I, I guess she hates puppies. You've got uh, Maleficence. Is that right? Scar? Sure. Jafar? Gaston. On. Gaston. All right. And Ursula, right? I'm told they're all bad, yeah. right? Is that correct? Yeah. All right. The biggest shock here is that you don't love Disney princess movies. All right, so, <laughs> and then here's what gets shady, all right? When you move from cartoons to real life, this is when, this is when it gets tight. Yeah, all right. So, again, it depends where you're at, but, but there's some bad guys here. Trump and Cheney, you've got Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi. I'm not making statements. I'm doing what Doc told me to do, all right? And then <laughs> you've got... <laughs> There's some that we hope we agree on. We've got Hitler and Stalin and, and Osama bin Laden. And then here's probably the oddest set of bad guys of all, right? Now, obviously, Jesus at one time was considered such a villain that they crucified him. Raised from the dead, and then billions of people began to realize this is the Son of God, and he was the ultimate good guy. And then times change. And now many people consider him more the problem than the solution, Right? what he said to be the problem rather than the solution. And his whole gang of Jesus followers, people where we are oftentimes seen as the problem, not the solution. Yeah, and I look at that group, and there's some rough-looking people there. Right? <laughs> really rough. Here's the reality. There was a time in history when the church was considered the good guys. And when everyone saw this as a place of hope and healing, but it's changed. And, and there was a time when it was thought that maybe we would just kind of move to neutral, but in fact, we've moved past that. We've, we've moved past just being kind of a neutral entity within our culture. We are actually now the bad guys. And so what does it look like for us to actually embrace that? What if we did? What if as a church we decided that we could don the black hat and we could actually be the bad guys? Isn't that cool? We get to be the bad guys, right? We want to be the very, very best bad guys ever. Really, I'm serious about that because guys, what, they, what we have found, they need so desperately right? If we care about people, if we love people, we want to be the best bad guys ever. And that's what this next series is going to be about. For the next couple of months, we're going to talk about being the bad guys. So I hope you come back for that, but for now, go away.